Welcome to episode 216 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Last week, the Canadian government carved out a carbon tax exemption for heating oil in the Atlantic provinces. It was part of an attempt by the uh, federal government to speed up the adoption of heat pumps on the East Coast. Now, this touched off a political firestorm. Prominent University of Calgary economist Trevor Tome declared that Canadian carbon policy was dead. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith demanded similar relief for uh, Alberta consumers, as did some of a couple of other premiers. But despite Smith's province already having a subsidy program for heating oil and propane itself, and the controversy is marked with heated rhetoric that, in my opinion, is over the top and unnecessary. But it has raised the question of the best way to use carbon pricing to lower greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. I think we need a, a another fulsome conversation about this. And perhaps we'll start it off today because I'm going to be talking to Dr. Mark Jackard, a noted energy and climate, econo a climate economist and recently appointed chair and CEO of the BC Utilities Commission. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Great to be here, Markham. Uh, I've done these before and I thoroughly enjoy them and I'm looking forward to this one. Well, this is going to be a lively one, I think, uh, even though you and I will probably agree on a lot of this. Um, and let's start with, oh, by the way, you know, congrats on the appointment. It's no small, uh, as, you know, BC, the BC government has finally directed BC Hydro uh, giving them a little more explicit direction in terms of um, changing the BC electricity system to accommodate BC clean BC, the adoption of the electric vehicles and all of that. And the BC um, Utilities Commission will play a, a, a fairly big role in that. So I think they've got the right person at the helm. Thanks very much for that. Um, and yeah, it, it is a time when, you know, governments are trying to, some governments are trying to move faster and that, you know, that can have repercussions for how we do energy utility regulation. Um, I do want to point out, though, uh, Markham, I, I probably still will end up arguing with you because we love doing that, you and I. I mean, we do agree on so much. Um, but now that I'm the chair of the Utilities Commission, which is the role I played for five years, 30 years ago, uh, I know that I have to be clear to people that the um, the comments I'll make today and why I know you call me on here is because I am an intergovernmental panel on climate change author. I've worked for a long time in analyzing um, climate policies and especially as a as an editor and a and a, a peer reviewer in journals. And so it's similar to the Utilities Commission process, which is evidence based and adjudicated. Uh, academic uh, work is uh, evidence based and adjudicated. And so I just wanted to make sure that I, sorry for the long prelude, but I have to make sure that anyone watching this show doesn't take my summary of what experts agree on as my position that can't be changed by evidence. Thanks for indulging me in that. Right. And I think that's fair to qualify because now you're in a public position and, and you have to be careful about what you say and what your the positions you're perceived to be taking. And so I think with that qualification, we're ready to get in with our uh, spirited debate that we we're talking about. So let's, let's do that. And, and, and I want to start with your take on the Atlantic heating oil carve out. Um, is that, does that get a yay or a nay from you as a, you know, carbon pricing specialist? Okay, well, I'm not worming around uh, just because I'm the chair. 
but I'm actually kind of indifferent to stuff like that. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. And that's where I think you and I might be similar. What I would say to you is I have strong feelings about the people who have strong feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> because when it comes to climate policy, if any government that is really trying you know, to get greenhouse gas emissions down has got a really difficult job ahead of them. And so I just can't be an ivory tower purist who is going to say that, you know, the politician should have done it this way, because in my class at the university, I've demonstrated mathematically that the best policy has the following attributes. It has to be the same per ton of CO2, the same everywhere in the economy, uh, same everywhere across the country, and so on and so forth. There are political compromises that are made. They're made within the guts of a carbon pricing policy. So it's not consistent to how we treat large industry or individual consumers. It's also, we have regulations that are overlapped and these regulations treat different sectors differently. As an economist, um, pure world, am I happy with that? No, I want everyone to space what we call the same marginal price. And then I know that that would be the cheapest way for society to achieve its target. But um, I know that we're not going to get that. And so um, when, when you asked me about that very specific policy, I don't know. I, I, uh, uh, of course, I knew it would create problems, but I'm sure anyone who you know, did that, that were already in hot water. So uh, they're in hot water because of the policies that, you know, let's say, an academic like Trevor Thomas said, that's the policy you have to have. So I would love him to run for politics and then do it pure like that. He won't get elected. Yeah, I, I know Trevor a little bit. I've interviewed him in the past, and and uh, I, I we will never see candidate Trevor Tome, in my opinion. Right. But anyway, right. be that as it may, um, I think where I took issue with Trevor uh, is not that not you know not to if he could quibble with this and said look you know this is not the best way to run this policy and you shouldn't have done an exemption you should have done it some other way you know because we all agree that you know that heat pumps should replace heating oil I mean that's kind of a no brainer so the question is how we get there and this wasn't the best way to do it that, if he had say if he had said that I would have been right on board oh, okay fine you know that's you know that's what a, that's what we why we hire academics is to point out the theory and and best the, the pros and cons of various policy options. But when he said, you know, Canadian carbon pricing policy is dead and that the federal government killed it, killed their own policy, no. That, that's where that's where I take exception. And I don't think it was a helpful contribution to the Canadian conversation about carbon pri pricing which has gone on for years now because the a Conservative Party of Canada has been a vociferous opponent of the consumer side of carbon pricing in Canada. They, they're they okay with the industrial emitter side, but they don't like the con the consumer side. And I think that Trevor's critique played right, right into that. And I want to, by by way of saying, saying that, I want to bring in a, a favorite topic of mine or favorite author of mine, which is Dr. Danny Cullenward from Stanford who wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I, I think you probably uh, it, uh, would approve of it. I'm sure you've read it with Victor yep. G. David, and, and it's about making climate policy work. And one of the points David, that he David made, they, yes, yeah. uh, that one of the points that they made was that that political realities 
require compromises and they act as a limiter on the application of carbon pricing theory in the real world. You just, and I think we see that playing out in Canada, you know, really well. Uh, and so, so they argued, and I know you argued that the one way around that is you have to bring in, you know, regulations and mandates and standards and, and, and other kinds of subsidies, other kinds of programs to work with carbon pricing so that we get to where we need to go. So what, what's your take on that? Yeah. So again, in keeping with the, uh, the theme that I've been telling you now, it, it, but this is what I've always been like. Um, people have said to me, oh, so Mark, you're against carbon pricing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm saying, let's try to make sure our society puts in place policies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions because the natural scientists who do climate science really have made a good case for why that's economically beneficial and, 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 and a whole bunch of other good aspects to it. Um, and then my point is, I'm actually just kind of going after the people who make blanket statements that aren't actually true, like to say you can only do it with carbon pricing. Wrong. Um, and, and and then what Danny uh, does and David Victor, who I know both of them, um, and there, I think there's some, Danny's even said that overlap with their book and my latest book, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success, where I talk about policy, is we're simply saying shouldn't we also pay attention to what other social scientists do uh, look at, and that's uh, political scientists and policy uh, advisory uh, scientists who, who do work in that area. So over the last 20 years, I've been paying, you know, rather than just keep beating my head against the wall and telling the world, you know, you're all crazy, it has to be a carbon price, and I knew it. Um, I prefer to work with uh, other disciplines and say, okay, when you know we humans aren't perfect, democracy's not perfect. We filter information. We have biases. We have misinformation. We have self-interest, and so we have to be looking at climate policy. And, and our if our job is to succeed, <laughs> to get emissions down, we should be humble, and we should say, what can I learn from other disciplines? So when I've worked in that area, and I can go into some details again if you want later. Um, we did some really good experiments because in British Columbia in 2007, we had a government that implemented everything at the same time. It did a carbon price. It passed legislation for cap and tip trade. It did a low carbon fuel standard like California. I designed for them a clean electricity regulation like the one the feds are trying to implement now, which prevented coal plants that were about to be built in a natural gas plant. And it did one other policy. Anyway, it did a, a, a shotgun approach of carbon carbon tax and regulations. And we were able to evaluate these and compare them on economic efficiency grounds, political acceptability, and so on. And of course, the carbon tax didn't, didn't do so well on the political acceptability side. The other policies got outcomes, uh, cost a little bit more, but not a lot more. And that's sort of the point I'm making. And that's where I want to I want to zero in on this because you uh, wrote an op-ed, a Globe and Mail op-ed in 2018, and you argued elsewhere that you call them flex regs, flex regulations. But and that's that, that's a key point. Is you said, yeah, it costs a, a lot. It costs more sometimes when you use a regulation or some other policy tool, but it doesn't it doesn't cost a lot more. And when you if you consider the the non economic costs or the, you know, I mean, what, what have we paid in political costs to be having this fight over, you know, this five or six or seven year fight over, over carbon pricing? 
how has that impeded us in other areas where we haven't been able to move as quickly because we've had this, you know, like political paralysis because we're fighting all the time about carbon pricing. Uh, well, one party is trying to beat the government up with with carbon pricing, but then you know Alberta and Saskatchewan have been involved in this, and there have been court cases that Ontario joined to challenge carbon pricing. I mean, that all comes at a cost. And yeah. Now, I think I think that all climate policies will be attacked. So I've also been accused sometimes of saying, oh, Jacker thinks it'll be easy with regulations. No, 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 no. So these things will all get challenged. The, the clean electricity regulation is about to get challenged um, that, that the feds are bringing in. And, you know, these they'll all get challenged. There are people who don't want us to do these things. And so I and so I, I get a little irritated when some people have said, oh, Jackard says it'll all be easy with flex regs. I'm saying, no, I just noticed that the political scientists doing research and we've been we've worked with political scientists on some of these policies. And surprise, surprise, we've learned through the evidence that um, the flex regs are uh, there. They 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 are less easy for people to to um, to distort. It's a bit easier to say we have a policy that well, it's called the clean electricity regulation. It means we're going to get more clean electricity. It, it, it like makes sense for people. It's not the word tax. We have a zero emission vehicle mandate. It means we're going to get zero emission vehicles. The policy says what it is. And I'll just add one thing, if you'll let me. I call the carbon tax or carbon pricing as explicit carbon pricing. In any of those flexible regulations, they're flexible because... They say to someone, you know, you have to sell this many electric cars and say, well, what if I don't? Well, you'd have to pay a fine or you can trade credits with somebody who sold more than that. And so that's why it's flexible. It doesn't make everybody actually achieve it. They pay others who were able to do more. Well, the, the credits that they trade with each other, the price of those credits, I can back out and calculate what the implicit carbon price was of that flexible regulation. So a lot of us, that's why we say it's also pretty economically efficient because there actually isn't, there is carbon pricing in a low carbon fuel standard, a zero emission vehicle to standard, a clean electricity, but it's implicit rather than explicit. And then some people get upset, maybe Trevor Tome and say, oh, but you should be honest with people, be explicit. And, you know, maybe he's right, um, but- This is politics, know, Mark. There, there ain't a whole lot of honesty going on. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes when you have to, you know, hide your medicine in the, in the dog food, that's the only way the dog's going to take it. Right. <laughs> and if they, and if you got it, you got it. No, look, uh, one of the things, okay. We talked about flex regs and in the course of interviewing, I, I don't know how many times I've interviewed economists, uh, including you about carbon pricing, but it's been a, it's quite a, quite a number, but we should talk about what the the actual options other than carbon pricing are, what kind of policy tools we're talking about, because it could be subsidies, it could be mandates, it could be uh, regulations. Could, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them. So give us, it seems to me like there's like five or six that we could probably say are the, the main policy tools available to the government. So what might they be? Right. So you just said, you probably don't realize you said it, you said that you said like five, and then you said there's a lot of them. So there aren't very many. It's really simple. But so governments layer on a whole bunch of stuff they, they'll like, they'd like, they'd like to say, and this is politics, they like to say, I got 80 policies to reduce emissions. You know, this is a Rick Mercer commercial. This is uh, 10 bucks for this. Um, but 
us on the intergovernmental panel on climate change, where I was a lead author on the client on the, the the greenhouse gas reduction chapter policy chapter uh, with colleagues from around the world. There was twelve of us, and we really boil it down. We say either you do carbon pricing, and you can do that in different sectors, like we do it in emission intensive industry, do it differently maybe in transportation, differently in buildings. Obviously, that's going to happen. Um, but you can also have regulations and only for a few sectors. So when we talk about major industry, some you know economists call our system in Canada, which everybody seems to agree on. Everybody agrees on it, even the conservatives. And that's this output-based pricing system is what you think about it as a carbon price, but it really only puts a bit of a carbon price on at the margin at the, for a few emissions. It's also an intensity regulation. It's a flex reg. So that covers all of industry. So then what's left? electricity, transportation, buildings. And then there's it's messy with agriculture, land use, forestry, and all that stuff, but th that's about it. So with electricity, we know you can do a clean electricity regulation. That's a flex reg. With transportation, well, we tend to put two on there. We put a zero, you don't have to do two. You could just have the zero emission vehicle mandate. You'd get to zero emission vehicles, but instead we do that and a fuel thing, a low carbon fuel standard. That's kind of overlap. Uh, and then in buildings, We've had more trouble. I mean, you could regulate um, buildings, so building codes, but we're also developing stuff that says the carbon content in the gas that goes to buildings has to go down. And that, that can be done with a flex regulation. And then finally, you mentioned subsidies. You can give subsidies galore. So you can give pinpoint sub. So that's where you end up with huge numbers and it can seem overwhelming. So think of uh, Biden's uh, subsidies for industrial location, for everything and we're copying some of that and and every every country that is really trying to move any european country has a lot of subsidy programs as well and hopefully especially targeted at low-income people and which is what the feds are talking about uh, and have been doing and provincial governments and and i think we're going to see more of that so what they what the federal government did with the uh, heating oil uh, exemption in atlanta canada uh, within the context of our conversation, is, is really not unprecedented, uh, not unusual, not the death of carbon pricing. And why do you think then that, because Trevor wasn't alone. I mean, there were, I follow a fair number of, of economists on, on uh, social media. And, uh, you know, a lot of them were leaking steam out of their ears. Uh, so why is that? I mean, why did people get so exercised over this? Right. You know, I mean, you're asking me to speculate on it, and I, I just think people like to be very judgmental. <laughs> they love to be, uh, I'm perfect, and that politician over there is imperfect. And and you, I guess you read that op-ed of mine in 2018, and that's exactly, I was making fun of the professor who stands up at the blackboard, and and of course, the stu his students or her students. Um, you know, they they kind of give them back the same answers and talk to them in the break or after class. And this is so great. And the professor is like, I would have been a great politician. <laughs> you know, my students tell me that um, they say the stuff. I And then I, I'm so good at showing how stupid the politicians are for what they did. So, I mean, we've been doing we've been doing this a lot. This isn't new, Markham, like that where ivory tower types are sitting there um, where perfection is is what we need to have. So will this be problematic, though? I, I think more the issue is that, um, well, to be honest, 
people, as I say, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been counseling uh, a government to to lead with a carbon tax. Uh, Trudeau got talked into it from the get go once he was in power. So that was, you know, and Rachel Notley got talked into it. Stephane Dion. Um, and so what that means is it's as people like me predicted, and I started predicting this in 2002. So I was warning Gordon Campbell in 2008 when he wanted to put in a carbon tax. I said, as soon as there's some kind of an economic, the economy goes like this, your popularity will go like this. And at some point, people will be feeling a pinch from an economic recession or in this case, inflation or whatever. And 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 then the carbon tax will be a target and you will be a target. So right. I think we're living through that now. I'm, I'm saddened, but Trudeau is low in the polls. And so, of course, he's got to act. And should he have done this one? I have no idea. I can't judge him on that. Um, but it's not it's not tricky. Like I, I can't feign anger and surprise that a politician low in the polls and the carbon price is a big factor. I can't um, I can't uh, say, oh, how, why did he do that? It seems pretty obvious. Right. And in fairness to Trevor, I, I, I should I shouldn't be asking you to speculate on why he did something. I should get him on here and I'll, I'll maybe try to do that. Right. I haven't interviewed him for a while and it might be time to get him uh, to get him back in front of the, the camera. Um, but so my takeaway from our conversation so far is that the the best policy mix uh, if we're going to, to for lowering greenhouse gas emissions is probably a combination of carbon pricing and sales mandates and uh, regulations in some areas and and, other, and then there's other you know other policy tools all designed you know for what the the policymakers think is the the, uh, the best approach to to lowering emissions in a particular sector or a particular region would that be fair to say uh no i wouldn't even say that uh, and the reason and so the, to me there is no ideal mix I could be, you could be in a society where it did it entirely with a carbon price. You could be in a society where it did it entirely with regulation. So sometimes I've had people say, some economists will say, oh, okay, I can see there's some cases where you need regulation, the carbon price won't quite work. I don't think that's true. If you can, if you can measure something to regulate it, then you can measure it to price it. Um, so, you know, so I, I've never really bought that. I think uh, I think a better way to personally a way to think about it is that politics um, is a messy world, and so uh, there's different party. In Canada, we have the, the federal provincial layer as well. So we just have there is no it's not rational. It's uh, it tries to be rational, the policymaker and the advisors and so on, but you just layer stuff on top and then you pull one out. And, and so you end up with this mix of subsidies and regulations and maybe pricing. A lot of places don't even do carbon pricing, really explicit carbon pricing. And I can't make any comment about why that mix is there other than chaos theory, to be honest. With you. <laughs> OK, politics, life is chaotic. Policy yeah. is chaotic. Uh, there we go. Um, I, I want to. uh well, you know, the, the point that I was making is not that there's an optimal mix, but simply that simply that there will be different mixes in different areas for different sectors and different regions and different different types of government, like a liberal government or an NDP government or a conservative government will all take a, a different approach. Like the CPC 
has always has said for a long time now, we don't like the consumer tax. We want to have more focus more on the industrial emitter tax. And the liberals, you know, take take both. And I think that the I forget where the NDP fall on, on that spectrum. But you know, and then the B, the the NDP in in BC have continued more or less with the the liberal BC liberal approach. You know, where they uh, instead of providing rebates, they lowered taxes, personal and business taxes. You know, and and so lots of ways to skin this cat. But let's talk about one that that I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about these days, Mark. And you you just briefly mentioned it earlier, which is output based pricing. And in particular for the oil and gas industry, because I was I was talk, I was interviewing uh, Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economic modeler and a former student of yours, and you know him well. And and we both we kind of agreed uh, that output based pricing should never have been applied to the oil sands. Should uh, never. It, they should have. It should have had the the full uh, the full carbon price applied right from the beginning. And right now, I was looking at Suncor's sustainability report for 2023. Prices now, they're enjoying prices anywhere from $60 to $90 a barrel, and they're paying $0.48 cents per barrel for a carbon price. And, you know, you see their, their competitors, the Synovuses and Imperial Oils and so on, they're not even forecasting a peak in their greenhouse gas emissions till 2030 at most. And I think that's just unacceptable in, in today's environment. And I don't think, frankly, that it's it's great compet it's a great com competitive strategy on their part, given however, you know, with the concerns, uh, you know, border carbon adjustment mechanisms you're seeing out of the EU and other places. So it I think that that the an emissions intense product like the oil sands bitumen should bear a bigger per burden of the carbon price, if not all of it. But I'm curious what you think about that. Right. So um, and I, you know, I do interact with Chris still. He's actually um, on the Ph.D. committee of one of my students, a Ph.D. student who's working on border on uh, innovation in emission intensive industries and border carbon adjustments and trade flows and things like that. So I, you're characterizing possibly Chris's position Let's. I'm gonna say both of us put it in limbo, so we won't debate. But what Chris said, and he can. You have your interview with him. Oh, we both um, know it was a crass attempt on my part just to get to legitimize my own argument. Come on, Mark. <laughs> okay, because I'll tell you why. I I think. So as I wrote in um, the Citizens Guide to Climate Success, I argued that we should be rapidly that countries that want to lead, and we all should want to lead. Um, should be reducing emissions rapidly in the domestic sectors that are not trade exposed. And, and the reason, it, it, and, and we should be working hard for border carbon adjustments. So tariffs that relate to pollution when you make cement and try to sell it internationally or make steel or aluminum and so on. And Chris is, by the way, probably the leading person in the world in that area right now, like the mix of technologies, economics, and how that all fits together. And I'm very proud of uh, watching his career. And, um, and so I've generally said, you got to do it domestically. And if you're hurting your emission intensive trade exposed industries, including fossil fuel industries, um, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. 
and you, you're not actually making the world better. So, but I won't argue this strongly, uh, Markham, because I know uh, there could be other reasons why you'd still say, you know, I don't want my oil industry expanding because they mess up politics and everything else. So I, I'm just, and I'm just, this isn't my view I'm giving you. I'm trying to give you the different arguments. So I, I would say, I actually don't have a view, but if someone said to me, we should apply the whole carbon price to the oil and gas industry in Canada, every bit of their emissions in the point of making their product, which they might export, um, I I can't make that strong argument. I uh, I can give you the counter argument, and uh, and I, I'm not going to say I have a view one way or the other. But the counter argument is you're not helping the world by hammering your own oil industry. Okay, well let's let's explore this a little bit because your flex rig argument is is borne out by the uh, industry and government working together under regulations to to reduce fugitive methane emissions from conventional oil and gas production. They're down around 40, 45% now, that which is much quicker than anybody thought they could do it. There's, uh, I think the federal government has raised its obje- uh, goals here from 40, 45% to 75% of those. By, by 2030, we're getting more ambitious. Uh, the, the companies are on board because every molecule of methane that gets saved is another molecule you can sell to your customer. Uh, and some of this stuff, you know, was uh, I saw one study that came out of the U.S. where 50 percent of the, the fugitive methane emissions came from like broken equipment, you know, stuff that the routine maintenance, better maintenance and repair programs would would fix and, you know, low cost and not a lot of trouble for the for the company. So this was I think I think we need to say that this for the oil and gas industry has been a, a real success. Um, the problem is is not the conventional side so much anymore. It, it's the oil sands. I, I mean, they, you know, I've looked at their data and uh, Kevin Byrne at S&P Global has done terrific work over the years, uh, mapping out where those emissions are and which facilities and, and which types of, of, um, of uh, oil sands to, uh, extraction, because there's five or six of them. And there just is not enough commitment from the companies, in my opinion, uh, to lowering this. In fact, Mark, when I, 2016, 2017, I was interviewing uh, VPs of technology for the various companies, and they were talking about solvent substitution and a whole bunch of other technologies. And you know what? It was about that time that the carbon pricing came in, and then they just kind of, I don't know, they, 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 um, what's the word? They, they backed off their commitment to to deploying those technologies. Uh, really uh, uh, waned. And I just don't, you know, now what they're trying to do is get the, the government to pay for carbon capture and storage, you know, which is a $50 billion bill. They basically want governments to pick up most of that. And I, so here's a case where you've already got an industrial emitters tax, carbon tax, but now they want to do, you know, they want to use subsidies uh, and have government pay for stuff that they're perfectly capable of paying for themselves. They're highly profitable at the moment, record profits, in fact. And I, and I, I, I think that the taxpayers should stand up and say, no, not this time. This is not a, this is not a good use of uh, our our tax dollars. It's not a. There are other ways of doing this, and uh, the, the the policies as designed are inadequate. Well, anyway, that's my argument. Uh, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I hear your argument, and I've already given you the counter argument. <laughs> the counter argument 
is that um, if you charge it, so first of all, that output-based pricing system, I call it a regulation actually, with a fine that happens to equal, a fine for missing your intensity target. So intensity means, like, I know you know, but for the listeners, tons of CO2 per uh, per ton of steel, <laughs> or uh, you know, amount of CO2 per ton of steel, amount of CO2 per barrel of oil, uh, per uh, whatever of aluminum. And so it, that's the penalty, and we're, we've aligned that to this rising carbon price. And, um, and so what's interesting is if I'm a, so let's say the price now is at $70 or wherever it is. If that price is $70, even though I'm only getting charged that price um, for my excess emissions above my intensity, I can go way beyond that. If I can find any investment that will pay me that that costs less than seventy dollars per ton of CO two. I can make that investment, even if it drives my emissions all the way to zero, because I'll have surplus credits that I can sell to someone else who finds it expensive. So it is a flexible regulation in that sense. It's like a trading system, and so to me, it's a. It, it, so when we worked on this on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I have to tell you that um, my co-authors from around the, the world love this policy and they would say, Mark, that's fantastic. It was almost like I had created it, which, you know, <laughs> I, I was getting credit that I didn't deserve. Um, and so, you know, your, so your, your thing is something that I can't comment on. You're saying it does, it, they're making excess profits or they're making profits right now. And therefore they shouldn't get a tax credit when they do um, carbon capture and storage and so on. I can just give you the counter argument, Markham. And the, and the counter argument is that we do want rapid advances in these technologies like carbon capture and storage, because we're not only, we're gonna have to start taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and burying it. And so actually there's been a lot of investment in carbon capture and storage globally, but also in Canada. And so people will tell you, well, it's a technology we don't know anything about, and that's just not true. We really know this technology. We, we're getting more and more sure about what the costs are. Uh, you know, as we get away from the early, the early developments, we've been burying CO two. We've been extracting it from fossil fuels. So, so I guess the counter argument to you, Markham, is that. Uh, that you should put aside your feeling that this is not fair or whatever you're, whatever's driving you and say, you know what, if we can develop this stuff in Canada and really do well, then when those carbon tariffs are on everywhere, um, this technology will be going around the world. I the would, counter. it's not a fairness argument, Mark. It's an effectiveness argument. The, oh. the Alberta, uh, the Alberta oil sands industry uh, has, in my opinion, not taken greenhouse gas emissions uh, seriously enough. It, you know, we've seen some declines in carbon emissions intensity. So it used to be that it was, you know, about 80, 82 uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalent for barrel. Uh, now it's down to 67. Well, that sounds great, except that the problem is that they've been increasing supply. So now you just have more barrels at this lower emissions intensity and absolute emissions, uh, it was the first year they they didn't increase. They're now at 81 megatons, which is 11% of the of the national inventory. And uh, they're projected to go up further. Kevin Burns says they'll probably go up to 85 
uh, megatons a year by, by 2025, 2026. And if CCUS is not implemented soon enough, we might even see 90 or 95 megatons. And I argue that in today's environment, because I know this deal, this deal got, got struck back in 2015, 2016 with the NDP government and, and then with the incoming liberal government uh, in 2016. And 100 megatons a year was considered, you know, the absolute allowable maximum. It was talked mm -hmm. about as an emissions cap, but it was never yep. implemented by the NDP. So it's kind of an, an informal thing. But nevertheless, I would argue that what was acceptable in 2015, 2016 is no longer acceptable today. Climate change, uh, the effects of climate change are now here sooner than we had anticipated. The world is moving, try, do, trying to move away from emissions uh, that much quicker. And frankly, Canadians and other provinces are now being expected to lower their emissions, their absolute and in their emissions intensity. And yet here we give, you know, we allow the, well, I guess now I am making the fair, fairness argument. But nevertheless, so it's an, a fairness and an effective argument. Basically, I think the, the, the industry has used it as a shield to keep governments and keep public opinion at bay. And they're not as committed to this as they should be. And the data, I think, supports that argument. Okay. So um, now if you, in a future show, talk about what my position is, don't say I agreed with you here. <laughs> <laughs> so I rarely say that. Trust me. Um, so, so basically you were saying, you. so let me just parse this out. You, you were sort of saying that you, you think the output-based pricing system for industry, for emission-intensive trade-exposed industries, you didn't like it, or I'm not sure. You can correct me, but here's the point. Um, if you think you more needs to happen from industry, or in particular the oil and gas industry, then you, then as a policy, you don't need to get rid of the output-based pricing system. It's a flex reg that tries to do this as least cost as possible. You can change the intensity emission intensity targets for that industry. So that's all I wanted to point out because I got the impression from you like this is a flawed policy because they're not contributing enough. And then the answer is, well, you don't have to necessarily throw out the policy. You do have to change the stringency of the policy. And this is always the case when when government when I do modeling or used to do a lot of modeling um, for governments and now former students of mine do it all over the place. And what we do is we say, oh, you're not going to achieve your 2030 target. You've got to change the intensity, the stringency of these different flex regs. So to me, you've, I, I mean, I would want to see the modeling because I've seen a lot of modeling where we get pretty close to achieving our 2030 target. But I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but at least a lot of modeling with the policies the, lib the federal liberals were bringing in combined with provincial policies that seem to be there or about to be there, then maybe instead of 40% reduction, we'd have a 30% reduction by 2030. And to me, I'd be really happy with that. But if, uh, if you thought we should have that 40%, then you'd look through and you'd get your modelers to say, okay, where's it cheaper? And, oh, yes, make the emission intensive stringency higher. Or maybe they'll say, oh, make your zero emission vehicle mandate go up even faster, which is what we just did in British Columbia, because our calculations showed that was the cheapest way to get there. So it depends how you decide fairness, Markham. If fairness is people should do it 
I, I know like a, a an Andrew Leach or a Trevor Tome will point out, don't isolate the oil sands, like because there's industry right across Canada. Make sure you do it, even if you don't use a carbon tax, use it as do it, try to do it, even if it's flex regs, do it as cheaply as you can. So that would determine what the contribution of oil sands and or oil and gas would be as its share of getting to that target. That's that's the counter argument. And I've I'm not taking any position right now, but I'm just explaining it. Right. And, and you know what? Um, back when the, the Alberta NDP, uh, the government of Rachel Notley, uh, introduced uh, her first output-based uh, pricing system, flex regs, uh, for and carbon price for for the, uh, the oil industry. But it was done uh, was, before her. It was done before her. Oh, yeah. So it's Esker. In 2005, right. Alberta innovated what is we now call the output base, or they call it tier in Alberta. You can have a different name everywhere. It's an innovation that happened in Alberta in 2005. Yeah, yeah. It was 2007. And that's okay. It was only 20. It was, it was 20 bucks a, a, a ton and, and wasn't very effective. But here's my it point. It wasn't 2007. Uh, it, was, it, it was implemented under Chrétien, and it was, it, it was the time of Chrétien. By 2007, Harper was in power. But anyway, we can talk about that later. I, I was there. I helped to do it. Okay. <laughs> when the NDP brought, brought in CCIR, Carbon Competitiveness Incentive Regulation, sure. their system used a, an emission intensity an industry-wide benchmark, and and it was not facility-specific. If it, it was industry, there was an industry benchmark, and then the benchmark became more and more stringent over time. And if you were in a high emissions, uh, you know, like if your if your bitumen uh, had a higher emissions intensity than somebody else's, then you paid more. And then the the folks who who had Low emissions intensity bitumen, they earned credits and they could they could trade them. This is exactly as you as as you said. The problem is then that the UCP gets in and the conservatives get in in 2019. They bring in this tier, and as as uh, uh, Professor Andrew Leach has, has calculated, it diluted the effect of of the of the carbon price by about a third for the oil sands. Right, and then since then. Like, you know, because I'm not sitting around modeling this. I'm not an economist, but I do follow what they say in their sustainability reports and what they're telling investors and so on, where they're allocating capital, Mark. And and I don't see the commitment to lowering emissions uh, that I saw six, seven, eight years ago. So let me jump in. The So first of all, when I tell you that flat, you can do flex regs, Flex regs are just as prone to being ineffective as a carbon price or subsidies or whatever. So no particular policy saves you from bad policy design. And so uh, I and so likewise, we did flex, you know, when we do zero emission vehicle mandates and then a bunch of the vehicles, people end up saying, oh, if I get the larger pickup truck, it's no longer included as a light duty vehicle. So then we get this escape and the effect is not what we expected. That's a problem for all regulations. And economists like Trevor Tome uh, are, it's good to point that out. And I point that out a lot. Like it, it, design is everything, but design is everything for carbon pricing too, because we never do perfect carbon pricing. So the, the fiasco right now with heating oil in the Maritimes, that's not new. We Carbon pricing has always been, and you're just pointing it out in industry, and then whether we call the output-based pricing system a flex reg or carbon pricing, 
that it's not going to be across the board. And so, yes, we'll be able to complain about it. I just wouldn't want to blame the policy. It's the politicians who've decided either we don't really care about reductions or we're really worried about the effect on our industry. You know, it, it can be legitimate reasons, but that's why it doesn't achieve it. So I just don't want you to tag, and I don't, maybe you weren't, but don't tag the policy with that outcome. It's the, the stringency has to be picked to hit your targets. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I, 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 I wouldn't. I, I don't dispute that, Mark. And, and yeah. I think this has been a, a good discussion around some of the practical issues. Uh, a critic like me who would like to see emissions reductions speed up, and you know, and I think just for the industry as well as the you know hitting our tar climate targets and so on. And then yep. some, some of the difficulties that 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 entails when you go to design the policy and you don't get maybe the output that or the the uh, the outcomes that you had had expected but let's let's wrap up this conversation mark because it's been this has been very interesting i'm sure there must be at least three policy nerds who, who are going to listen to this and and will uh, will enjoy it as much as i have but the um i said at the beginning of the interview i said you know we need to have a discussion and is it fair or not to say mark that we need to go to revisit the issue and just have a conversation, a national conversation with regional, you know, variations because you know every province has its own carbon pricing schemes, but a national conversation based on evidence about what the best way is to lower our emissions and hit our targets, and and come up with some kind of a more maybe we maybe we modify our approach to this and we go you know what carbon pricing doesn't have to do it all alone now we have you know mark jackard's flex regs and what does that mean here and there and can we agree on that and and uh so on so do we need a, a, that kind of a, a national conversation about it? no i think uh so the the reason is uh people have people come from different interests and so you remember I talked about the chaos theory. Um, so when Justin Trudeau got elected, he said, we all want to do this. I'll create a pan-Canadian framework. So this is what he did. He said, let's all get together and we're all going to agree on this thing. And they didn't. I mean, some of them said we agree, but within six months, they didn't really agree. They, just, they, they knew they had to say yes initially. And that's okay. No, we, what we need to do is people like you and me need to keep saying where these policies um, are not working. And so I really appreciate what you do. And I was going to give you one example, though. Like, I think it's an interesting time for people who are, if they're do doing well in the polls federally, for conservatives uh, of a conservative bent, right of center in Canada. And, you know, when, when uh, this thing just came out in the Maritimes, I saw that Aaron O'Toole, who had been the head of the Conservative Party, as you know, um, uh, tweeted about this and said, well, I'd had a proposal for this. So he got a hold of me and some modelers, former students of mine at Navius, who run a, 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 probably Canada's premier, it is Canada's premier energy economy modeling uh, consulting company. And so, and he got me to be an unpaid advisor. And he said, okay, I'm gonna freeze carbon pricing at $50 um and and i'm going to take that money and give it back to consumers if they buy a heat pump in the maritimes instead of uh is continuing to use their uh their oil furnace 
and I'm going to keep the industry stuff going. So you have people out there across the political spectrum who care about climate. Um, but can you get all the provincial premiers and the federal government? I just I am I think we we have some good stuff going. We have um, we have a new government in Manitoba. Let's see what they do. The government in Quebec has followed British Columbia, or like there's a little bit of a competition there. You know, let the the federal government will still be in power for almost two years, I presume, unless the NDP unless it all blows up. So we we've got some good policy. Like, so let's get the clean electricity regulation finished and modified a bit if we need to for regional equity. Um, we've got the low carbon fuel standard. They're putting in a federal a zero emission vehicle mandate. Let's just, and I think I kind of got that tone from you. Like, let's not Trevor Tome or whoever. I don't want to pick on Trevor either. Yeah. You know, it's all dead. Like, no, uh, there's good stuff going on. If you had all your eggs in the carbon pricing basket, then maybe you feel despair or everything's dead. But I don't see that at all. I see there's some really good stuff going on. Actually, that is a good way to leave this conversation, Mark, because the and and really it reflects the, the comments I made at the beginning, which is is that, yes, this was a controversial decision. But in the grand scheme of things, it it, it isn't even a little, you know, bruise on the on in the Canadian carbon policy strategy and policies. And, and we and we shouldn't get caught up in these sort of apocalyptic rhetoric. And, you know, if there's stuff that needs to get changed and improved, let's do that. Right. And and if we need to raise our ambition, ambition, let's do that. Right. Uh, but okay, so I, I think we've actually this may be a first uh, that we kind of agree on something, uh, I mean, that's okay, <laughs> that's all right. But I I've got to run and do another interview about carbon pricing, and so yeah. but Mark, I really I always appreciate our discussions. Thank you very much for this. Yeah, and just one final word, actually, I think you and I agree on like ninety eight percent. So, but I think these are really good discussions to have, and I really enjoy being on your show. So, thanks for having me again, Markham. Well, we'll we'll do it more uh, quicker this time. We haven't had you on for a while, so uh, we won't we won't leave it as long next time. All right. Mm -hmm.